Welcome to the Practice Purchased Podcast, where you'll learn everything you need to know to buy the perfect dental practice, all for free, and all in less than 20 minutes an episode. Learn more about your host, author, presenter, and coach to hundreds of successful dental practice buyers by visiting brianhanks.com. Welcome to Practice Purchase Podcast, Season 1, Episode 12, What to Negotiate in Your Letter of Intent, What to Negotiate in the LOI, and What to Ignore. Now, fundamental basics here, purpose of an LOI is to commit to each other, okay? So when you submit and sign that LOI, you are saying to a seller, I want to buy your dental practice for X price. And a seller is saying to you, if they sign the LOI, okay, I want to sell you my dental practice at X price. The signing of the letter of intent kickstarts the due diligence process. It allows buyer and seller to agree on major deal points early on. And an additional benefit, and this is a side benefit, but it is nice, is it gives lawyers a starting point to use with the legal documents. At the asset purchase agreement, the big legal document that transfers ownership from one party to another, uh, and you know, it's 40 pages long, 80 pages long, has all the legalese, um, is a longer version of, you could argue, of a, just a, a simple one, two, three page letter of intent, okay? So letter of intent, um, you know, we're gonna talk about two things today, what to negotiate in the letter of intent. And as we go, you're going to hear about a few things that you can ignore, okay? Things that don't matter to, as much to you as a buyer. And so if you're savvy, and as you're listening to this episode, you are going to come up with a strategy, right? There are going to be things in here that now that you're, you understand the basics of how this work, that you're going to care a lot about. And there are going to be some things that you don't care as much about. So we're going to try to hit eight things <laughs> that you're going to need to negotiate in the letter of intent, uh, which means I'm going to have to move kind of fast. Uh, but never fear, there is more information about this topic. Uh, but the eight things we're talking about today are first and foremost, price, of course. We'll also talk about two, asset allocation. Three, the accounts receivable. Number four, the closing date. Five, the building and the rent. Number six will be the letter to the patients. Seven, the rework. And finally, eight, where we'll close on the non-compete. Those are the key areas to negotiate in a letter of intent. So let's get into what and how to negotiate, what you care about, what you maybe don't. Uh, and we'll start with price. This is an obvious one. Um, and, and most buyers approach this as you would expect, right? Like they're buying a house or they're buying a cell phone in the mall or something, right? And they think big number is bad, small number is good. <laughs> and it's not it's complicated. And it's tough to argue with that logic, but I want you to think beyond simple win-lose math here for a second and try to understand the motivations at play on both sides, okay? Uh, so let's start with the seller for a second who obviously wants as much as possible for their dental practice. They want as high a price as they can get because um, almost certainly the sale of this dental practice is funding their retirement. This is probably the biggest check, single check that they'll ever get in their life. It's a huge lump sum, comes all at once, and it can and often does make or break the timing of retirement, when they can set down the handpiece, and other key issues. So there is a big dollar amount that happens all at once with a ton of emotional baggage tied up into a single number. Now, on your side, on the buyer side, this uh, matters, you know, you, 
similar for you, right? This is probably <laughs> the single largest purchase you'll ever make in your life. And, um, you know, it it is a big number and it's going to affect your finance, finances over the next at least 10 years, depending on what type of loan you get. But there's a difference here, okay? There is a major difference between you and a, and a seller. As the buyer, your purchase price is amortized over a period of time, usually at least 10 years. These days, I'm seeing more 15-year loans. So for simple math, I want you to think about what we talked about in some of the very first episodes here, the importance of finding the right dental practice. And the right dental practice, if you remember, we defined as um, well-run, a collections level high enough to support the financial goals that you have in your life, low overhead in an area that you like, right? And so let's pretend for a minute that you found that practice. But horror of horrors, the broker has valued that practice $100,000 more than your super savvy, very good looking dental accountant named Brian <laughs> says that it should be worth, okay? $100,000, that is a huge number. $100,000 and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've got to negotiate. I mean, it's clearly overvalued. Clearly the broker here is suggesting, right? They're, they're throwing this high number out knowing that, sell, that buyers will come in and they'll want to negotiate and I'll probably end up $50,000 over where I think it will be. And, um, and I would suggest to you that that's possible. It's possible, but it's not necessarily true and it's not necessarily guaranteed. Um, think about $100,000 amortized over 10 years at 5%. Now, on a monthly basis, that is exactly $1,060 a month, $1,060 a month. So meaning over a year, overpaying for a practice will cost you a little bit more than $12,700 a year in payments on your practice loan. So let me rephrase the question. Are you willing to, quote unquote, overpay for a practice if, it's the right practice in the right location with all the right characteristics that you care immensely about if it's going to cost you $12,000 a year. I can't answer that question for you, but I want you to at least ask the question. Am I saying that you should overpay for the practice? Am I saying that you should just take whatever price a broker gives you and accept it and just pay it? No, absolutely not. There are a number of cases where it's very appropriate to negotiate the purchase price. And you can and should in a lot of cases. However, this is not, buying a dental practice is not one of those times that you are automatically ex expected to negotiate the purchase price right away. It doesn't happen every time. And um, this is a dangerous area to get down, right? Using this same logic, this is the same, <laughs> I call this equipment rep logic, right? I'm, I'm essentially doing the same thing that equipment reps do where they come in and they say, hey doc, you know, this fancy new laser is only going to cost you one extra crown a month. What's the big deal? And so the answer is that there's definitely a, a line in the sand that every buyer has. It's going to be different for different people. But I just, I just want you to be aware of the issues and motivations at play. Okay, Don't neg negotiate just to negotiate. If this is your dream practice in a competitive situation, uh, it can and often does make sense to offer full price, even if you feel that it's maybe a little overvalued. And sometimes, and I've done this uh, uh, several times with buyers who found what they described to me as their dream practice, we've even distinguished ourselves as buyers among other buyers 
with a slightly above asking price offer, right? Maybe $10,000 or $15,000, enough to get the seller's attention so that they pay attention to that buyer and are more inclined to go with them as the buyer. And, uh, and the savvy buyers know eh, they're not in love with the idea of paying an extra $10,000 for a practice, but they know that $10,000 amortized over 10 years at 5% is a drop in the bucket compared to the potential of getting their dream practice. Okay. So that's price. Obviously you want to think hard about how to negotiate the price. Another area of the practice, second area on an LOI to negotiate will be the asset allocation. Um, the asset allocation is how the asking price is broken up for tax purposes. Now I'm not going to go into detail in this podcast episode on all of the in, um, implications of asset allocation. I've got a blog post up on the website called how asset allocation works in dental practice purchases. Okay. But here's the basics. Okay. Technically, technically negotiations around the asset allocation are win lose, right? This is not a, uh, an area that it's easy to win win in most states. There are a few states where this is a win win, where the buyer and seller both want a similar asset allocation. Um, so technically if the seller gets what they want, you as the buyer lose. And if you as the buyer get what you want in asset allocation, the seller loses. And the asset allocation matters a lot for a seller because it will, the asset allocation will determine how much a seller pays in taxes on their purchase or on the sale of their practice, right? So if a seller sells, uh, for a million dollars, they get that million dollar check in their bank account, they obviously will owe some taxes on that. And how much they owe in taxes, as you can imagine, is a big, big, big deal. It's a big deal, okay? For you, as the buyer, um, it's a little teeny, teeny, tiny deal for you. I've done the math on this. And why it matters for you as the buyer is it matters when you get to depreciate the purchase of the practice that you're buying, right? So that million dollars you paid that seller you get to depreciate that, which means you get to take the exp uh, on your taxes, the, ex uh, the value of the practice as an expense that lowers your tax bill over a certain amount of time. And the amount of time in question is what happens with the asset allocation. And so in most deals, uh, it's a, the asset allocation is a huge deal for the seller and a small deal for you as the buyer. So if you're smart, you can maybe make a, uh, a reasonable ask. And then if you want to win somewhere else in the deal, give on the asset allocation and have the seller feel very happy that their tax bill is going to be lower and maybe make you happy somewhere else in the deal. Last comment I'll make on the asset allocation is uh, just be aware that the equipment and supplies listed in the asset allocation is not, repeat not, the eBay value, right? That is not the fair market value of those equipment and supplies. Okay. Uh, so don't get confused by that, uh, but watch on the asset allocation exactly how to negotiate that. The, uh, the third thing we're going to talk about is the accounts receivable. Okay. We're, accounts receivable is simply work that has been done in the practice, usually right before you bought it, uh, but it hasn't been paid for by a patient. Okay. The value of the accounts receivable, right? The crown that was done three weeks ago, but the insurance company hasn't paid it reimbursed yet, or um, the patient hasn't sent in their, their uh, bill. Um, that amount is added to the price of the practice. It is in addition to the million dollars that you paid the seller, right? So you're gonna, you're going to negotiate upfront how much 
more you're going to pay the seller for the accounts receivable. And there are two approaches here. You can either buy them or not buy them. Uh, some sellers don't want to sell them. If that's uh, something that's not on the table, fine, no big deal. Uh, most sellers do want to sell them. And um, they want to sell them because they want to be done, right? They don't want to think about this anymore. They don't want to be collecting bills after they've sold their dental practice. And, and I do recommend that buyers, in most cases, take a look at the numbers and if it makes sense, to negotiate for the purchase of the accounts receivable. I like buying the accounts receivable for two reasons. The first reason is that you buy them at a discount. And usually that discount is a percentage applied to the age of the bills that are outstanding. So bills that were sent in the last 30 days, you know, are paid at a higher percentage than bills that were sent over 90 days ago. And uh, to me, that's like buying a stack of cash with a shorter stack of cash, right? So uh, that sounds smart to me. And in most cases, I think that makes sense. The uh, second reason that I like buying the, the accounts receivable is that it generally makes the transition easier between buyer and seller. There's no one needs to keep track at the front desk of which check that shows up from the insurance company is for which patient, and which doctor that goes to for three to six months, okay? Um, general principles at play here would be um, to ask if it's on the table. If it is, negotiate for a, uh, an amount and a, and a percentage applied to those ages of accounts receivable that's um, advantageous to you. And then uh, my last two comments on accounts receivable would be, number one, try not to pay for or pay a very small amount for any accounts receivable older than 90 days. And if the accounts receivable aren't even on the table, make sure that you at least negotiate a percentage that you will be paid to collect the accounts receivable for the seller. Okay, so the seller said, hey, I'm not going to sell you my accounts receivable. And you say, fine, no problem. We'll collect them for you. I'll send you a check once a month or whatever came into the practice, but the check is going to be for 95% of the amount of whatever we collected for you, right? I'm gonna apply a 5% discount because now it's your, you the buyer, it's your staff, energy, computers, time, money that is spent collecting money for the seller, okay? So if you don't buy, apply a discount, usually 5% standard. Um, and finally, finally, with accounts receivable, uh, and this generally isn't listed in account in the uh, LOI, uh, so, but bring it up at some point in the deal. Make sure that you separate out, separate out patient credits from the accounts receivable. Okay, patient credits are treated differently than the accounts receivable. All right, we've got five more sections. Uh, there's a lot to keep track of here, uh, but all of this is a lot easier if you see it in writing. Okay, um, having a copy of a draft letter of intent is super helpful here. And uh, it is one of the tools you get in the Practice Purchase Blueprint. You can see it on paper. Uh, you get a detailed discussion with examples in the video of exactly what to negotiate, normal ranges, you get examples. Uh, so go to um, the online course, uh, practicepurchaseblueprint.com. And if you are interested in purchasing that, use the code podcast in the checkout. And that promo code, promo code podcast P-O-D-C-A-S-T will get you $100 off the price of the course. Okay, so we've got our five more sections. These are a little less controversial. There's less at stake in terms of dollars and everything else. Uh, so let's go through them uh, more quickly. Now we're going to talk first about the closing date. Okay, 
and all I'll really say about the closing date is just make sure that it works for both of you, uh, but don't lose a deal over the purchase or the uh, the closing date. So if you as a buyer need to give 90 days notice and a seller wants to close 75 days from now, if I were the buyer, I would agree to that. I would say, yep, I'll close 75 days from now, even if I knew I've got to give 90 days notice today to get out of my job. Uh, and the reason for that is that a lot of sellers, as they get closer to the closing date, will get a little more flexible. In general, closing dates tend to be like pregnancy due dates, <laughs> right? They're close, but they're never exact. Uh, and so just make sure that a closing date works for both of you, but try not to lose a deal over a closing date. Um, fifth area that to talk about would be the building and the rent. Um, in an LOI, if you're going to rent, simply say that you need a lease that satisfies loan requirements, okay? You don't need to negotiate the rate of the lease yet because the, the seller isn't the landlord. They can't agree to any specific number. So say that a letter of intent is conditional upon a lease and getting a lease and you being satisfied with it. If you're going to buy the building, and this is, this is something to pay attention to, make sure you agree to the appraised value of your bank's appraisal. Otherwise, you're, you're going to have to come up with more cash. Okay, If you tell a seller you're going to pay $1.3 million for uh, a building, and then your bank goes and appraises it at $1.2 million, the seller says, hey, you told me you're going to pay 1.3. Sorry, the bank's only going to loan you, you know, 1.2. You got to come up with $100,000 to close on the building. Okay. Um, sixth area to, to talk about would be the letter to patients. I recommend that you split the cost on the letter to patients with the seller. This is going to cost you a few hundred bucks, but remember, this is marketing. This letter is going out to all the active patients. And if you are putting some dollars in, you're going to have more control. Okay, you're going to have more control if you're paying something for the, the uh, patient letter. Seventh area would be redos and rework. Um, fact of life and dental practices that crowns fail, work needs to be fixed. And um, you'll need to assess for yourself how serious this section is with a formal patient chart review. But you can't really do that until you sign the LOI. And so, um, you know, think to yourself, how important is this section? If the seller is leaving and, you know, Retiring to Hawaii or something could be important. If they're staying in town, maybe a little bit less important. But in general, most letters of intent will say something along the lines of the fact that a seller has the option to come in and fix the work that needs to be fixed, or they'll do it and um, you, as the buyer, will do the rework, not charge the patient, and then send the seller a bill. A typical range on that would be uh, 65 to 75% of a seller's normal uh, fee schedule. Last topic on an LOI to make sure that is included and talked about is the non-compete. Um, those are usually referenced as years or, and miles. Uh, starting values on a letter of intent would be five years, 15 miles. Um, obviously, if the more urban the area, the smaller that radius is going to be. Uh, the more urban or more rural, the larger that radius might be. Um, some states have a fewer number of years that can apply. Uh, so check with a lawyer. And don't assume that a, a non-compete is not enforceable. And most, uh, in a lot of cases, they are. Okay. So you're buying an income stream. Remember, you're buying an income stream. This is not a phone. This is not a pair of jeans. Um, as you're negotiating your letter of intent, what would you rather have? Would you rather have cred on Dentaltown or some Facebook group because you negotiated a few bucks off? Or would you rather have a smooth transition? 
If you think about and do the things we've talked about in this episode, you're going to have a higher likelihood of having a smooth transition. If you run into an issue, shoot me an email, brian at brianhanks.com. In our next episode, we're going to talk about, we're going to finish up our discussion on LOIs and give you three submission tips to increase the chances that your LOI is accepted. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Practice Purchased Podcast. For more information about Brian's best-selling book, How to Buy a Dental Practice, or about the Practice Purchase Blueprint course, visit brianhanks.com. Thank <laughs> you.